Well, I'm going to ask you to do two things here. Turn to Acts 16, verse 35. Put a finger in that text and turn over to Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. So you have two things to do. Acts 16, 35. And the second thing to do is Philippians 1, 3. And then I'm going to ask you to stand out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Let's stand now and give a reverent hearing uh, to God's holy word. Acts 16, beginning at verse 35, Now, when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. The jailer responded, or reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. Now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out to the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and they departed. Now turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 verse 3. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of grace with me. God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Well, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and the praise... You may be seated. <clears throat> there is a, a line, and particularly a word... In that great 17th century uh, Reformed Confession of Faith called the Canons of Dort that is applicable, I want to draw on here and connect to our text. And in the midst of, um, of a rich paragraph on the ministry of the church for the sake of building up believers in the Christian life, there's this phrase tucked away at the end which says, Grace is conferred by means of admonitions. Grace is conferred by means of admonitions. And that word admonitions is really our point of contact to our text here this morning, particularly in verse 40. Because you can see in the, the latter portion of verse 40 that as the, um, the missionaries were there in Lydia's house, 
Luke summarizes their ministry with this word. They encouraged them. And the relationship of ideas here is that that word which is translated encouraged here in our text can also be translated admonish. And I would argue here, as you think about this term and how it's used in our text, that it's it's pregnant in terms of its sense or meaning. It has a a large sense, including both uh, encouragement and admonition. And I'm going to argue that's the case because of the situation. Think of that word admonition. Tuck it away. Realize it embodies both concepts of encouragement and ethical admonition. And let's think through a couple of details that are at the backdrop of our text, which helps tie that idea into uh, understanding the meaning of our passage. And the first thing that we would look at is the timing. The first thing that we would think about here is the timing. And the timing is urgent. If you look at your text in verse 35, you can see here that no sooner have the missionaries begun to wipe the sleepers out of their eyes after a a very brief night of rest, interrupted by two things, right? Interrupted, first of all, by, by an earthquake. And then second of all, by this ministry to the Philippian jailer, and by the way, they end up uh, winning him to Christ that very night, going to his house and baptizing his whole family. They barely had time to jump back in the rack before it was morning and they woke up. And the thing that happened when they woke up is they heard uh, the officials uh, of the magistrates, who are called policemen here, knocking on the, on the jail cell door, telling them to get up, to get their stuff, and to go. Go out the back door of the jail. And what's interesting is you read through the details here, you realize that the magistrates, for whatever reason, and it's not written in the text, so we can only speculate on it, the magistrates realize they've done something terribly wrong. By allowing the missionaries to get swept up into mob justice realizing that it was proper it was improper for them to to um, uh, to lay stripes upon them and to flog them and then to throw them into jail without a due process under the law somehow these magistrates come to the conclusion that they got to cover their tracks and the best way to cover their tracks is to open up the back door of the prison and give uh, Paul and Silas the old boot and say get out of town You see, they have shamed them publicly in order to cover up that public shaming. They want to kick them out privately. It's that moment when the Apostle Paul sits up and he says to the messenger, well, I'll tell you what, I've got a message to your boss. And the message to your boss is that I'm not leaving town until they come back here and open the jail cell and walk me out with a public parade because I am a Roman citizen. And you just don't do that to Roman citizens. And that all by itself is quite fascinating idea that the Apostle Paul would consciously and intentionally um, appeal to his Roman citizenship and to make stand against the magistrates. And likely one reason why he did that is because he was trying to carve out public space for this new fledgling church in Philippi. If it's always associated with the shame of the flogging and the jailing of those missionaries, there won't be opportunity for it to gain a footing in the city. So here the Apostle Paul responds to the outlandish and the preposterous notion that he'll just go quietly 
in, in the shadows of the dawn and leave town without a word. Well, Paul says, no, we're not going to do that. And so the magistrates uh, permit him to have a bit of time, but they're kicking them out of town, make no mistake about it. So the first thing that they do is they make a beeline for the house of Lydia. So right away when you start thinking about the, the time frame of this ministry here, you realize that it is an urgent ministry. It is a last moment ministry. This is the last time the Apostle Paul is going to be able to address this fledgling church plant. You see, he had to come here and not just say goodbye to Philippi. But he had to put them on a firm footing in order that they would learn how to live the Christian life. So the timing is critical, and that helps us understand what's going on here. The second thing is who uh, is in the room. You're told that they went to Lydia's house. It doesn't tell you a lot about who's there. But knowing what we do from the context here, beginning at verse 14 forward, I think it's fair to say there were at least three people there. We could say Lydia was there. It's her house. Okay, that's fair enough. We can say the slave girl was there. She was the one who was delivered from demonic oppression just the day before. She's just brand new to her experience of grace. And I've got to believe that the Philippian jailer was there. He had just been saved and... Uh, he has this uh, freshly minted relationship with the apostles. So what do you have here in this room? And this is one of the fascinating things that we think about when we think about the gospel. In that room, we have three people of very distinct backgrounds and experiences. We have in that room Lydia. We know that she sells purple, which means she's rich. We also know that she is from a city in Asia, Thyatira, which means she's not a citizen of Philippi. She's a foreigner. The other person in that room is the slave girl. This is a, this is a poor lady who had been bought and sold and trafficked in the marketplace for cash. She'd been oppressed for who knows how long with this abusive spirit of the python. She is somebody who's been used her whole life. She is an oppressed person. She is an impoverished person. She has no family. She has no relationships. She has nothing. But she has one thing. She's been saved by grace. And then you have this jailer. If there's anybody who's an establishment person, it's the jailer. Because from what we know of the era, people who would have been put in positions of responsibility like this were likely retired soldiers. They could trust those people. They could count on those people. So he's probably got a, a Roman pedigree and a distinguished one. He is the city jailer. So when he went into the coffee shops in town, this is likely the guy you are going to be nice to. Knowing that he held the keys of the prison... He is an, an, a connected man, a man about town who knows people and has forged relationships with people. He is probably somebody of some means and wealth. The point that I want you to think about as you consider who is in this room is three people of entirely diverse backgrounds. And yet here's the wonderful thing about it. They are all united in this they're sitting in the pews there in the house of Lydia because they have been saved by grace. 
One of the great wonders of the gospel is that Jesus Christ can do things for a broken, fallen world, which all of the wisdom of secular humanism cannot, with all of its incessant, pharisaical preaching about be nice to each other and lauding all of the glories of multiculturalism and sensitivity, Christ does one thing that all of that hogwash can't. It can really bring people together of entirely different backgrounds and experiences and cause them to be one in fellowship because of Christ. That's a marvel of the gospel all to itself. It has a power to knit people's hearts, lives, and experience together based upon the power of grace. Those are the people sitting in that room. All three of them have just recently and freshly in their experience been brought to the saving grace of Christ. But that's the reason why you have to do what he's doing. You see, the reason why Paul has them gathered here in this room and encouraging slash admonishing them is that they're all babies spiritually. There's not a mature believer in the house. And that's the problem. That's precisely the problem, and that sets up for the meaning and significance of what you're reading about here in verse 40. Because these are the people, though having experienced grace, now have to grow in it. They have to grow into maturity. They need growth and wisdom. They need to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. They need ministry. And the problem is the only minister uh, within hundreds of miles from there are Paul and Silas, and they're leaving. So essentially, what you see happening here is a crash course in Christian discipleship teaching them all things Christ has commanded, the law and the gospel. That's exactly what the canons of Dort are trying to say in that very terse and pregnant phrase, grace is conferred by admonitions. And in the context of that paragraph where it occurs, it speaks about the means of the ministry being appointed under the apostles and teachers in Scripture to keep God's people in grace. To keep them in grace through what? Holy admonitions. This is the essence of what Jesus is speaking about when he talks about discipleship. Discipleship is teaching the whole Word of God to all of God's people, the law and the gospel, so they will be built up in Christ. And yet Paul has about five minutes to do it. And so, as we look at that word encourage, now understood in the backdrop of with the uh, in connection with the backdrop of these details we discern what's going on here is that Paul is speaking to them in terms of encouragements and admonitions that they may be established in faith and founded spiritually so we're going to think about that this morning we're going to peel apart that word exhortation encouragement admonition and draw it out in two parts gospel exhortation an ethical exhortation or moral exhortation. So let's begin now with gospel exhortation. And uh, what I decided to do was draw out 
these uh, admonitions, since we only have the word encouragement there, encouragement slash admonition, I decided to draw them out from Philippians 1 because clearly that's what Paul is talking about here, the, the very things that he said to them when he left them. So look over in your Bible. It should be open right now. Look it over. And look now down to verse 6, because this is a, a critical verse summarizing the, one of the admonitions uh, he gave them. Think about it. If, if you have a, a short time to give a crash course to somebody about Christian discipleship before sundown, one of the things that you would say to them, knowing you're not going to see them for a while, knowing that they don't have a minister there to help them, one of the things you're going to do is establish them in the gospel. You see, a church that isn't founded upon Christ and grace and assurance of salvation will never be a mature church. It'll be a weak church. So the first thing that he must have done is... uh, exhorted them and encouraged them with the gospel. And here in verse 6 of Philippians 1, you have a tremendous verse summarizing uh, what this gospel is all about. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul defines gospel here as a work begun by God. Do you hear that? Paul defines the gospel from at least one perspective saying it is a work begun by God. Now, before he gets to that, he says, I'm confident of something. And that means that he is settled in his mind and his conviction. In other words, the strength of his description of the gospel here is, uh, is grounded in the fact that it is, it is not a passing thought or an immature thought or an embryonic thought. No, it's a thought that is deeply settled as true in his mind. And the thing that Paul says is true about this gospel is that something that God has begun, that word begun is a critical word. That word begun means to initiate. It means to inaugurate. In other words, it speaks of a creative thing. It speaks of something not being in existence in one moment and then being there in all of its force and reality and existence the next. And the reason why it's there is because it's a new situation that has been done by God. It is a work. It is a divine work. We know that's true because the first letter of the pronoun he in your Bible is capitalized. He who began a good work. So this is a divine-sized work. And we know that's who Paul has in mind just by thinking back to Lydia's experience. You're told in Acts 16, 14 that God opened her heart. A divine work. That, you can say, is a perfect illustration of this initiation, this work begun, this created new thing. He opened her heart that she could believe. We know it's a gospel work that Paul has in view here by looking at the pronoun. Who is the recipient of it? I am confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you. 
You see that the apostle is referring to the recipients of the work. Who were those whom God worked in? You. And as soon as you think about that, you realize all of this is describing what happened to the three people we know were in that room. By the way, there were other people there. Lydia's house was all baptized, wasn't it? Philippian jailer's whole house was baptized. The poor slave girl is the only one by herself. She's that isolated poor lady who's been abused her whole life. But now she has Christian friends. She's got brethren in the Lord. She has brothers and sisters she never had met before. All from a different mother, but all from the same God. So all three of them, if you think about it in terms of this summary statement about the gospel, it fits with all of them. Think of Lydia. She is sitting there listening to the Word of God. She seems to have a hunger for the Word or a desire for the Word that's been worked in her already. But here's the thing. Unless God had worked in her and ripped open her heart, as the text says, she couldn't have responded. That tells you she was in a place of need. But this is the work that God did in that moment of her listening. When He opened the heart, that was the initiation, that was the inauguration, that was the beginning, that was that creative, sovereign, gracious instant in time where she experienced grace. She experienced regeneration. She was quickened and renewed and able to respond. So that works perfectly for Lydia. How about the slave girl? This is someone that we identify with when we think about her because of the terrible existence she'd had. Think about being somebody who's separated from your mom and your dad when you were a small child and cast into the hands of grubby, uh, of money-grubbing lords. Chained up, put in behind bars, uh, having your dignity stripped from you treated like you were a, a piece of, of material, something that could just be exchanged with money in a marketplace full of men. What a horrible life. She was treated as nothing. And then worse yet, she was forced to, to, um, to be a carnival act. Telling fortunes, reading poems forecasting the futures so that her masters could get rich. Indwelt by the spirit of Python, widely described and held to be an abusive spirit. Her life had been mangled. And yet, in an instant of time, the Apostle Paul exercised that demon in the name of Jesus Christ. And what we know that means from Scripture is that is the moment not only when the darkness is being cast out, but then the light and the grace and the truth of the gospel settles into the heart. So what do you have here? But a lady whose fortunes have been overturned in an instant. And now instead of being dominated and ruled and abused by the spirit of darkness. She's a believer. How about, how about the jailer? What a, what a different world he lives in this morning when he wakes up. What, a, what an entirely different universe of thought and reality and experience. All he had known his whole life was paganism, calling on false gods. 
and and just hours before, he, he had a knife to his throat, ready to kill himself. And yet, when he wakes up on this morning, he wakes up new. He wakes up a believer. He wakes up in Christ. He's been changed. This is a tremendous reality here, and all of it was because of what God did. God had sovereignly caused the ground to shake and to move and to quake. God had permitted those missionaries to stay in their jail cell, to hold all the rest of the prisoners back, to speak words of of confrontation in the darkness, and then to expound the Word of God to him so he might be saved. This man just experienced it all. There are three people in this living room who are new converts by grace and Paul is looking at them before he leaves and one of the things that he wants to tell them is what we find right here in Philippians 1.6. I am confident in this very thing. God did something to you. He made you new. He changed your life. He washed you from your sins. He brought you to Christ. He created something new in you. He gave you a new heart. Now here's the other side of that good news gospel story. It's bound up in the rest of what you find here in verse 6. Paul doesn't only testify to a work initiated, he testifies to a work completed. He who began the good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, the, the summary of it all is the good news is you're saved by grace and the, the good news is that you're continuing to be saved by grace. The good news is you'll never fall short of grace. The good news is that there's going to be a lot of days in between that moment when you come to Jesus Christ and you bow down before Him and you exercise faith and you believe in Him and you trust Him and you love Him. There's going to be a lot of days in between that day and your eyeballs close in death when you're going to fear for things. You are going to feel as if uh, hell's foundations are shaking you loose and, and trying to bring you back into darkness. You are going to experience days of doubt and anxiety. There's going to be days when you fall into sin. There's going to be moments of your life that you're not proud of. There's going to be times when you're not sure whether you're even saved because of how you feel or things you've done or how you've been treated. There's going to be times when you're going to say, I don't even know if the Father in heaven even... Here's my prayers. You're going to have days of apathy and misery. And so one of the things that a person needs to be assured of is even though my life is going to feel sometimes like a ship at sea being bounced and tossed by these waves, which we have no control over. One of the things that you need to be persuaded of is that when God puts His hand upon you in your conversion, He never takes it off. Did your dad ever do to this uh, when you were a kid? My pop did. He had big hands. Big, strong guy. Put his hand on my shoulder. And just held me there. When a little boy is young and full of energy and just needs to calm down a moment, there's nothing like a father's hand upon the shoulder to say, just be still. And to feel the force. I'm here. There's this sense that Paul is saying, that's your life in Christ. When he puts his hand upon you, he doesn't take it off. This is one of the deep consolations of the Calvinistic understanding of salvation. 
Jesus Himself used the words of hand. He says that those who believe in Him are in His hands so firmly that no one can pluck them out. Why in the world do people come up with a system and say you can lose your salvation if you want to? Who came up with that idea? The joy of the gospel here that the Apostle Paul breaks down for them for their encouragement is gospel encouragement. He who began the work in you with his hands will never let you go. You see, so that same word of encouragement which he preached to these saints here gathered in this room, these fresh babies in Jesus Christ, is the same word for us. Because it doesn't change. This is how God always acts. He cannot change. The way He operates does not change. And so every saved person this morning hears the word of exhortation that Paul gave to those saints gathered in Lydia's living room. God began the work in you. God began the work in you. God continues the work in you so that you'll never fall short of your salvation. Gospel encouragement for us this morning. What else is in our text? Well, what else is in our text is ethical admonition. You know that Paul had to encourage them with gospel words, but then he had to say, but you've got to grow in Christ. So now there's ethical admonition. And I want you to look down your text now in verse 9, where you see the beginning of Paul's prayer for them take shape. And this I pray. Okay, so we know it's a prayer, right? It says, I pray. This then is a record of Paul's prayer life that he is giving to them so they will know how it is that he has been praying for them since he left. The structure of this prayer is important. You uh, look down at your Bible, the very next word after pray is that which you might as well just say, put quotation marks there, because now he's going to tell you at least one thing he prayed for. That your love may abound still more and more, real discernment, real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things which are excellent. Unquote. That's the first part of the prayer. The second part of the prayer uh, comes right after it. In order to, another set of quotation marks, to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. So you have a two-part prayer here. Paul says, I've been praying that your love will abound more and more in knowledge and uh, sincerity. And then on the other side of it, he says, I've been praying that you will be sincere and blameless till the day of Christ. We have a twofold prayer. Both of them are ethical admonitions. Uh, we could say that Paul is not merely expressing a wish. He's calling them to a type of life. So we have law now. We've had gospel. You've all been encouraged in Christ. Here's the law. Here's the things that Christ would have you to do as His disciples. And the first part of the prayer is this. Love must abound in ethical action. Love must abound in ethical action. Now, I want you to notice here that that love is the seed 
of Christian uh, Christian ethical action. This I pray that your love may abound. You see, there's going to be no abounding and no uh, qualification or coloring in what this is all about until you start with this fact. Deep down in your heart, when you come to Christ, implanted there is the love of Christ. We know that because of verse 11, but we know that for lots of reasons, okay? So one of the things that Paul does is he he says, okay, you've come to faith in Christ, and when you came to faith in Christ and you experienced renewal, something that is planted in your heart like a seed is the love of Christ. And it was there and it continues to be there because you see the way Paul frames it in. I pray that your love may abound still. But it still imply. It means it's been there all along. I still want it to be there. And now it intensifies. I want it to abound more and more. In other words, it can't just stay as it is. It can't just continue to be a seed. All of you would be disappointed, right? If you decided to plant a garden, some people like to do that in the spring. You'd be disappointed if you went out in the backyard with a with a shovel and a hoe and you dug up the weeds and you took all that dirt and you maybe put some potting soil in there and then you took those little seeds and those little envelope things you buy down at Home Depot and, and you put it in the hole uh, in the ground like that and you covered over the hole and you put it there and you watered it. And then what do you do when you do that? Well, you wake up in the morning, you take a peek out the window to see if, if there's anything shooting up, right? It's probably one of the most exciting things in the world to see a seed grow from seed to a plant. But one of the things that Paul is saying is it, it can't just be the case that a seed of love has planted your heart and it just sits there. It must grow. It must abound. It must grow to excess. That's what's indicated here in the abounding and the more and more. And one of the things that tells you is that the Christian gospel and and its effect, which is regeneration, when it takes root in your life, is a power. It is a force which is energetic. It's bursting boundaries. It doesn't just stay there. It moves me. It shapes me. Changes me. So what Paul says is, I've got to abound more and more. Now, here's the key. That love has to abound in a particular way, and the particular way it must abound is ethical action. Look at your text. I pray that this love may grow more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So what's in view here? The first thing that shapes this love as it abounds and as it intensifies and as it grows up like a plant is it needs to be shaped by the knowledge of the Word of God. And as that happened, the Apostle says something else needs to happen. He says that it must grow in all discernment. All discernment. Now, we had our private catechism when I was growing up with with, uh, our sons. And one of the things that we always used to ask them after we went through a whole array of catechism questions and answers, one of the things we would always ask them is, what does discernment mean? And one of the answers for what discernment means, and I'd take a few different ones, but one of them was that you can't write a law for everything, which is true. 
I mean, there are 613 uh, statutes in the Old Testament law. That's hardly a law for everything. That's a lot of laws, but it's hardly a law for everything. There's going to be life situations where you can't go chapter and verse. I found a specific citation of a statute that directly applies. So one of the things that discernment is about is I look into a situation and I take the principles of the law and I see how they apply in specific situations. That is discernment. That is exercising the mind so that I understand how something applies. This is about moral decision-making. It is taking the truth and seeing how it's relevant to life. So the thing here that Paul says that they are going to need is to grow in discernment so they understand how this love applies to their life. All knowledge and discernment. And wow, what a different perspective on love this is than we hear in the world. The world tells us that love is something mushy. It's just emotion. It's just hallmark. But love is an action. Love is a moral decision. Love is a a determined action based upon truth. So it pairs well, these ideas, that love would, would grow in knowledge and discernment. And the fact that it's to be put into action is is expressed in the very next clause here, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. This is a great way of thinking about things because uh, there's a, in this process of, of taking truth and applying it to life and to situations, sometimes there's more than one viable uh, action to take place. And what Paul says, the thing that you're to do is find the thing that is most excellent in the situation. That's love abounding. Not just doing the minimums, but doing the precise thing that is righteous, that's good, that's glorifying to God, helps our neighbor. So uh, the first thing here that Paul prays is that their love would be manifested in ethical or moral action. The second exhortation is found in the rest of verse 10. In order that you may be sincere and blameless. In order that you may be sincere and blameless. The the verb be there is a present active verb. It's a continuous state of being. And the thing that you would continuously be if you are being shaped in your Christian experience and maturity, is uh, sincere and blameless. I think we already have an idea of what sincere means, right? When you ask somebody, are you sincere about that? What are you asking them? You're asking what's in their heart, right? Do you really mean that? You're asking about their motives and their real desires. Are their words grounded in their heart? Or are they just saying things? Sincere then speaks of a, of a separateness, a, a holiness in heart, a real attitude and desire that's in conformity to God's Word. And then the other is the life, blameless. It speaks of 
outer conduct. It speaks of, of, of living in a way that's consistent with what you say the moral principles of your heart are. So what you can see is this is a fairly comprehensive calling here. A sincerity of heart and a blamelessness of conduct. An inside-out Christian life. If you think about that, you feel a little scared, right? Because the heart is where we like to hide. If we can't hide our conduct, we can hide our heart. And that's often when things go wobbly and out of disorder in our life and our conduct, eventually it is a betrayal of where we've been hiding in our heart. Eventually, when there is a disconnection between my behavior and my, and my heart and the things I say I believe, it's because I haven't been watching my heart. So this is kind of scary in a sense. Until you read the next phrase in verse 11 having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. You see, Paul says, I, I'm asking for this. I'm calling for this. I, I'm admonishing. I'm exhorting you unto this life of holiness and heart and conduct. And the reason is because a condition has been met. You have been filled. It is a perfect tense verb. It is a passive verb in form, which means something has happened to you. You have been filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Yes, it's a tall order to have a combination of inward holiness of heart and external holiness of behavior. It's hard. It's impossible. But the beginning of that life is what happens to you in your conversion. Christ fills you with grace. And that's what he's saying. Because you are united to Jesus Christ, because you are partakers with Him in His grace, well, you can do this through the help of the Holy Spirit. You can pursue this life, love and ethical action, and a sincere and blameless walk. Wow, that's the message Paul preached to these three people. I bet you they were hanging on the edge of their, of their uncomfortable seat the whole time. These are the words that he was engaging them with. These are the words he was saying, I'm not going to see you for a long time, maybe never. But if you, if you don't ever hear from me again, I want you to remember two things. Gospel exhortation and encouragement. The work which God began in you, He will perfect. Always let that ring in your ears. An ethical admonition. Let your love abound more and more. Be sincere and blameless because you've been united to Jesus Christ. He says those words to that church gathered in that living room, all of them immature, young, new believers in Christ. He said, go build the church. Go build the kingdom of God now in Philippi. What does that mean for us this morning? And it seems to me that it means the same thing for us as it, as it meant to them. We, we, we said that 
the entry point maybe of how we approach this passage and, and think about this passage is through the, the lens or the filter of that great phrase and the canons of Dort. Grace is conferred by means of admonitions so that we will be kept through the holy admonitions of the gospel in the path of Christ. First thing this morning, people of God, that we take away from our text is the thing that they would have taken away from it all, the thing which Paul aimed for. As believers, we need to be kept and established in the Christian life. We need to be kept there. We all need to be established. And, and the very sense we get from the ethical admonitions that, that are really the underpinning of Paul's prayer is that this is a lifelong thing. We need to be kept in the way. We need to be established, rooted and grounded in Christ. Think of the ministry of the church always as that then. It'll never stop being that. It always has to be um, a, a, a proclamation of both the law and the gospel so that there is a keeping us in check and, and a establishing us more and more. If it's not doing that through uh, dividing law and gospel and preaching uh, gospel and then the admonitions of Christ, then we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Because we have to have both, because we're wayward in our hearts. It's easy for us to want to stray, and it's easy for us to actually stray. So we constantly need to be brought back to this and kept in check. And so what we see Paul doing here in this living room is setting a pattern. This is the ministry. This is for our good. This is the way we are kept and preserved. And so let's think about this for ourselves before we leave, huh? This is the ministry to us this morning. This is Paul's ministry to us this morning. Gospel encouragement and ethical admonition. Gospel encouragement this morning. The gospel encouragement is the same encouragement that he gave the Philippians. He who began the gospel encouragement for you this morning is that God sovereignly, apart from your help or mine, initiated the work of the kingdom in your life. The wonderful news for us this morning is even if we weren't seeking after the Lord, He was seeking after us. And I can't help but think what the Philippian jailer must have thought. That guy was a hardened battle veteran. He was a Roman. He was a pagan. He wasn't looking for the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden it showed up one night in the middle of the night in his jail. Don't ever forget the fact that when God is seeking you, He's going to find you. Oh, how glorious it is. I love to hear stories of conversion. I've heard many of them throughout my life as I talk to fellow Christians. But I love nothing more than to hear that story of people who weren't even seeking and then one day they sat down in the church almost by mistake. And the Word of God just did its work. This is the consolation that we have this morning. This is the gospel encouragement for us this morning is that God is seeking His own and He's initiating, He's inaugurating, He's creating that new thing in your life that wasn't there before the moment when He began to bring you to Himself. So what you have this morning is you have gospel encouragement. God has begun it. God is continuing to do it. God will never, ever let it fall short. 
But because of that, there must be the grace conferred by admonition. And so we think about those as we leave our text. Your love is supposed to abound more and more. Your love is supposed to abound more and more. You are to grow in knowledge and all discernment. You are to have your spiritual sensitivities sharpened so that you are able to uh, approve and understand and know the things that are most excellent. And you are to pursue a life that's sincere and blameless. Those are our admonitions. Abound in love. Grow in knowledge and discernment. Approve excellent things so we can apply truth. And be sincere. It doesn't mean you're not going to fail. You're going to fail every day. But the believer perseveres. And the good news is that connected to us is Jesus Christ. You've been filled with His grace. So when you fall, He'll lift you back up. And He'll carry you towards His appointed finish line. So people of God, we have a great end of all of this, a great hope that as we practice these things, uh, we will have a life rich in spiritual fruit. God will bring us to His appointed end, which is the glory of His name and the praise of God. We thank you for uh, this this sermon preached on short notice, uh, with little time, to a new church. Because it reminds us this morning that we're always thinking about that beginning point. So often we feel like we've not very gone very far away from it either because our life isn't always changing as it should. We're not maturing often as we ought. So we thank you for bringing before us a testimony of those new things and those things that we are to commit to, gospel encouragements and ethical admonitions. Lord, we've come under the sound of your word. We ask now that you would cause us to come under the power of your word. Through your spirit, you'll work these things in us. Deep consolation and joy, heartfelt joy in God through Christ. And then uh, a determination to walk in uh, love which abounds and be sincere and blameless that we may live in all things to the praise of your name. This we ask through Jesus. Amen.